Welcome to episode 255 of CXO Talk. And we are speaking about the pharmaceutical industry. We're talking about healthcare and patients and the relationship between drug companies and patients and the business model of drug companies and the societal, cultural, political pressure. This is going to be a fascinating show. I am Michael Kriegsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. I want to just say a brief thank you to Livestream for supporting us with video infrastructure. And if you go to Livestream.com slash CXO Talk, they will give you a discount on their plans. So do that. We have two extraordinary guests on our show today. And I want to introduce first Richie Atwaru, who is the chief digital officer for Quintiles IMS, which is a huge company. Richie Atwaru, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, man. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, you know, every time I'm here, I thank you for what you do. You drive a great conversation and we all learn from uh, listening to each other. So thanks for that. Well, thank you. And this is this is your third time on the show. Richie, uh, briefly, tell us about Quintiles IMS and tell us what you do there. Very quickly, Quintiles IMS, we are uh, the largest partner for the life sciences industry. And uh, we are what I like to call uh, the patron saint for taking the silos out of the industry. So we've got services all the way from molecule to market. And we work with our customers uh, across that journey to make sure that we can connect uh, the organizations horizontally as pharma transforms, which is what we're going to talk about today. I love that. The patron saint of taking silos out of the pharmaceutical industry. So, Richie, thank you for being here. And we are also joined by Melind Cam Kolkar who is the Chief Data Officer at Sanofi. And Malin, this is your first time. Welcome to CXO Talk. Yes, it is. I can't wait to go through my initiation rights on the show. Looking forward to it. So, so Malin, uh, tell us about Sanofi and what is what does a chief data officer at a pharmaceutical company do? Okay, so let's start with Sanofi because that's the easier question. But uh, Sanofi is uh, you know, a large pharmaceutical company Company, biotech company headquartered in Paris, France, which is where I'm actually dialing in from today. Um, they focus on a couple of key areas, namely vaccines, general medicine, uh, specifically diabetes and cardiovascular. Uh, and also with the acquisition of Genzyme, we've entered the world of specialty and rare disease uh, and oncology, which we find incredibly powerful. But if you sort of take those three combination of areas, plus our device and manufacturing division to support patients with diabetes, you've got a really nice roundup. Uh, I should also say I forgot the consumer health division as well. So you've got a nice roundup from, let's call it chronic care to specialty rare disease, to then supporting patients through devices down to the consumer level when we enter our consumer health world. I was going to say, you're, you're a huge, huge company. Your revenue last year was what, like $33 billion? Yeah, something like that. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't track it all the time. Um, you know, I think being a chief data officer, it's my fourth month over here now. Um, and I guess to sort of help the tone, uh, part of the reason why I, I don't get to spend perhaps as much time as I'd like to on the, uh, on the financials um, you know, the, the reason I think why the uh, Sanofi decided to hire a chief data officer was for one very clear reason. We have a, 
endemic problem within the industry, and that is really because of the silos that's often been created over a period of time, we really produce three assets, right? One is product, so our compounds. Two is a share price, particularly if you're a publicly traded organization. And three is information. Now, if you ask yourself, well, what are we really good at? Uh, I don't think any shareholder is going to say you're doing the best you can because who wants, of course, we want to keep getting shares going up. Likewise, when it comes to product, you can always produce a better pipeline. But when it comes to information, I think that's the one critical piece that whilst we produce a lot of it, you can argue that the distance between data to decision-making is still far than less desirable. So my job at uh, Sanofi as a chief data officer is really to help accelerate creating better decisions faster that are more relevant in context across the spectrum from, uh, you know, from R&D all the way through to commercial and across our business units. So, Richie Atuaro, when we talk about silos inside the pharmaceutical industry, what are, what are, what are we actually speaking about? And how does this relate to the broader changes that are going on regarding healthcare and, and ultimately the impact on healthcare for, for people, for patients? Well, I think, I think most of us um, understand silos pretty well, right? These are vertical departments within large companies that tend to perform a specific function. And they may perform that function well, but if you look at multiple of those silos together as a broad organization, you'll see inconsistencies and gaps uh, to, to be solved for. I think with the pharmaceutical industry, there was a time when it was okay to have silos. Not that you wanted them, but if you had them, it was not the biggest deal in the world. And we're seeing uh, what I like to call the three waves of change enter the environment of the pharmaceutical industry that's creating uh, uh, the financial reality and, and quite frankly, the competitive reality to start to think about what the business model looks like and take the silos out. These three waves, I think most people would, would recognize them. The first wave is what, what came from the supply side. So I think of this as the patent cliff, right? Um, I think we've heard enough about the patent cliff and we understand that the supply of discovery uh, of, of, of drugs in the pipeline has changed quite a bit. And, and, and the good thing about the patent cliff is that it was sort of contained within the pharmaceutical industry, right? Yes, there was some implication to other stakeholders, but it didn't radically change the landscape because each pharma company was suffering from the same strain from the supply side. The second wave, is what, what I like to call the wave coming from the demand side. This is the, the influence and the pressures of, of reimbursement being changed, payment terms being changed. I think what we see in the United States with Obamacare and the model of delivery has created a tremendous amount of strain that created a whole new wave of pressures for the pharmaceutical industry. So I think that's the second wave. Now, this one was not as self-contained in the industry. This included the patients, it included the payers, uh, it also included the government to kind of look at that. Where we are today is what I like to call the third wave of change that's coming through the pharma industry. And this is the digital health and the technology paradigms that are entering at the same time. Now, the patent cliff is not completely solved for, that's still moving over, right? The, the changes in the payment is not completely solved for, that's still here. And we have this new wave being driven by the stuff that Malin's talking about, which is more data, digital health, some of the new technology paradigms. What's interesting about this third wave is that it is not self-contained in the pharma industry or in healthcare. Now you're seeing new entrants start to enter the competitive landscape. Apple is a good example. 
Amazon is a recent good example. And this is creating the type of strain where we as vendors in the industry have to start to look at what type of solutions we provide to our customers, because it's not just that the competitive landscape is changing and the pressures are changing. You're seeing new entrants to the marketplace, which is going to drive disruption. I think Richie brings up a really good point there. You know, I often get asked the question, well, Milan, you've only been here a few months, but what's your observation in the industry? You know, where do you, how do you see us benchmark? And I always have a quiet grin uh, whenever that question comes up because, and I reply with the following, you know, if you were to compare a Brontosaurus and Tyrannosaurus Rex, you could argue that they're both dinosaurs, but when the comet hit, does it really matter, you know? And I think what the industry is facing right now is, in fact, that horizontalization. Uh, when we see consulting practices, when we see um, folks coming in and often talking to us about their discipline in the pharmaceutical industry, I almost have to argue, well, how relevant is that when you've already got most businesses already becoming technology businesses and most technology businesses already eating away at our business? And what you've seen here now is this... I would say cautious reluctance if many, in many ways to understand what the implications of that are. And I think the jury is still out. I think, but one thing is clear, this is a comet and there's no getting away from it. Uh, and the sooner we are to embrace that, I think the sooner we are uh, in terms of really maximizing our business value to our customers, namely the patients, physicians, payers, and regulators that we work with. And of course, consumers. So what... Is there an answer? Where where does this need to go, and how does the pharma industry? Uh, what do they need? What does the industry need to do to get there? I think the the issue here has really changed in the last five years. When I first entered the industry, for example, the name of the game was how do I thrive ahead of my competition? Right. If I think about some of the problems that we're solving for customers today, um, they're starting to look like how do I survive, right? And, and I, I love that metaphor, Melinda, on, on the comet and the dinosaurs that you're talking about. The, the crux of the matter today is not so much how I engage with patients or how I discover drugs or how I figure out my pricing or my analytics. Those are all individual problems. But at the core of the problem is the notion that the business model of the pharmaceutical manufacturer is starting to expire. You know, if the three of us were given $3 billion today, from, I don't know, KKR or TPG to go start a pharma company to manufacture treatments for those that are disenfranchised by health. I'm not sure we would pick the model we have today that takes eight to 10 years to discover a molecule and bring it to market and takes 2.8 to $3.4 billion to do that. I'm not sure we would pick that model. So there's a lot of pressure that's starting to wake up the realization that the business model is no longer one that is profitable and we've got to go at the business model. Melinda, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because that's sort of yeah. where I'm starting to anchor most of our investment. Look, I, I couldn't agree more, Richie. You know, it's, it's one of those areas where at the crux of it, you know, yes, the business model is changing, right? Once upon a time, it was a rep-led, uh, you know, uh, really a, a rep-led, if you will, commercial model. Um, I think it's clear to say that model, particularly for chronic care and general medicine, is we've seen it already eroding away. It doesn't mean that sales reps aren't important. I'm still a big believer that at the end of the day, when it comes to sales, relationships matter, right? But the nature of those relationships, the nature of those engagements, the channels under which you take under, the also primary market research, if you will, right, to understand what do our consumers really want, the timelines under which you operate those have dramatically shifted, right? I mean, once upon a time, you would do a year-long brand plan. You could argue, should they be month-long now? 
right, based on what we're seeing out there. Likewise, in R&D, um, starting up a biotech company, you could argue with some of the particularly garage biotechs that are coming in that you probably don't even need $3 billion. You probably just need a cheap sequencing machine, um, which is getting cheaper, as we know. Uh, you have some knowledge on biology. But I think what's emerging even more so is the nature of technology in that pursuit of achieving a product that can hit the market. Now, in saying all of that, I don't want to be disrespectful to the regulators in this instance, because clearly there needs to be a new ecosystem that's evolving and we're all learning at the same time. So I think the opportunity for us as an industry body, if we were to con conclude that this is a healthcare and life sciences industry, is that we need to work with the regulators because this technology is moving so fast, uh, but yet the regulators themselves are still learning. So what is true and appropriate may not necessarily always be relevant. Uh, for example, I was having a discussion today. Cybersecurity is the new sexy, right? I mean, you've got to know cyber if you plan to do digital health. Otherwise, the risk at which you put patients and physicians in is significantly high. You can't hire a music major like uh, like Experian and uh, and hope that it would work. I w Michael, before you go, I want to touch on this this notion of time for a little bit. There is a there is a construct of time. Um, uh, not being as important that is left over in the life sciences industry that we're now starting to wake up to, right? I'll, I'll give you really simple examples. I touched on this notion earlier. It takes about eight to 12 years from the moment you discover a molecule to the time you get it approved to be able to bring it to a patient. It takes about eight to 10 years to do that. Um, you know, if you think about an automotive company, let's say Mercedes, for example, from the day they start to draw the first car, when they, when they do a full model design, right? From the day they start to the day it rolls out on the showroom, it takes about three years, okay? Now, that's probably not as impressive as my, my second example that I want to share with you. If you think about the first video of, of autonomous driving, you guys remember that first video on the roof, right? With, with, with those, those young kids with the car, with, with the cones, right? When we first saw autonomous driving, to the day when it was rolled out by Tesla and Google, uh, you know, to be like commercially ready on the road, granted it needed permission, it was about five years. It took about five years to go from a couple of young people on a laptop controlling a car with some cameras to industrial grade autonomous driving. That is, that is an insanely different way of looking at time as opposed to in the life sciences industry where we still do things in decades. And that part of it is dead. Yeah. I mean, if I could just add one last thing, Michael, to that point, I think where the time perhaps has that risk averse nature in the pharmaceutical industry is that perhaps unlike uh, banking and other such industries, the reality is if you get this wrong, people die, right? And that's the, that's the real crux of it. So I can fully appreciate and respect the fact that sometimes you do want to be a little bit cautious because of course, who wants to create a you know, a, a medicine or some kind of patient service that really is not yielding a positive outcome. So for one, I'm quite grateful the fact that we are basing more medication and pricing and reimbursements, et cetera, really on health outcomes. But I think in, in many ways, it's not just the actual medicine that has to take into play. It's also the customer experience at point of treatment that needs to be part of that equation as well. This is a, a very fascinating discussion uh, where you talk about customer experience at point of treatment. And, and let's come back to it because we've got some questions on Twitter already. And I wanna remind everybody, go to Twitter, use the hashtag 
CXO Talk, and you can ask our guests questions and they will respond. It's a great opportunity to get access to these folks who are usually hard to reach. So, so ask your questions using hashtag CXO Talk. And we've got three similar questions from Wayne Anderson and from Ian Gertler and from Chris Peterson, who are all asking about security, privacy, the aggregation of data. Yeah. And, and Melinda, you mentioned, you mentioned security. Uh, mm. Thoughts? You guys are in the industry. Yeah. Look, I, I think this is perhaps one of the most, uh, you know, when we think about um, how we organize our enterprise information management assets, you know, and I remember in, back in the day when we used to do some of this work, you know, our security compliance legal teams were often the poor guys left at the last minute to decide on a particular initiative because the, the cool factor was all around the app or it was all around the, the campaign. Um, but the reality is that that has to change, that is changing, and it's, a, it's probably the most critical ingredient. I think recently you would have heard the head of the FDA talking about you know, building security as part of your design process when it comes to devices and uh, digital health uh, aids. So for me, as far as I'm concerned, it is one of the first things we think about. And all of that really stems from the basic question, what is the intended use of that data, right? If you can't answer that question, you probably shouldn't start that project. Um, I think the other two pieces that are becoming equally important in the utility of data is the social responsibility aspect of it, as well as the ethical responsibility aspect of it. Um, it's not that these are new concepts. They've always been there, but they've often been there, say, as part of the overall embedded program, uh, but not necessarily an integrated program, if that makes sense. They're always on the periphery. You know, they're, oh, did we check off this piece? Yes. Now you can't check it off. Now it has to be, did we design our data and exploration activities with these in mind, thinking ethically, socially responsibly, and from a privacy perspective as well. So... Certainly from my team, this is something we take very, very seriously. I think it's good that the that security um, and privacy is becoming more actionable in the narrative because it was in the narrative for a while, but it wasn't necessarily something that we were taking action on, right? One of the things that I find interesting, and, and this, this, is, this is exactly the way it was in financial services, right? When financial services was going through a transformation of their own a decade ago is that when you start to have conversations about security and privacy, the automatic reaction is to think about, oh, look at all these new data sets. They're dangerous, right? Look at all these new uh, uh, pipes and integrations that we've opened up. They're very dangerous. And that's because it's an issue of familiarity. Most of the threat is actually in the data that we've had for a very long time that we work with, that, that, you know, that we've become comfortable with. And I think we make a mistake of thinking that when you do new things with new data sets, suddenly that must be more dangerous, right, than the ones that we have right now. I think that's the first thing that we we ought to make sure that as we go about this exercise to start to unlock and unleash data to drive the integration to get those data to decision uh, uh, sort of outcomes that Malin's talking about, we don't sort of uh, mistakenly uh, misappropriate where the risk really is, right? Because there's still a lot of risk internally. But I think what's what's even more interesting is that we are at a point now where there are technology paradigms that are allowing us to have data that is protected but shareable at the same time, 
Okay. We used to have to make this 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 binary decision before. Whereas if I if the data is protected, then it can't be shared, and if the data is shared, then it's probably not protected. And I'm going to hint hint which paradigm that is. If you've been following me, you know which one it is. But we are we have a reality in front of us with the invention of the of blockchain with with asymmetric cryptography and distributed ledgers to truly start to build business models where data can be protected but shared at the same time, and that I think is opening up a lot of opportunities. So we have uh, another comment, a really interesting comment from Twitter, and this is from John Nosta, who says, <laughs> "Hey, John." <laughs> <laughs> All right. So John Nasta is saying, yes, it's true. Uh, as as uh, one of you said earlier, if uh, you fail in the pharma industry, then people die. Melinda, I think you said that. But he points out that the that quote snail pace success also results in deaths. Could not agree more. So how do you balance? How do you balance this need for speed? And obviously there's elements of our healthcare system that are just failing miserably. So where, what do we do? And link it back again to this notion of silos that, that you were both talking about at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think a lot of it comes down to, yes, there is a historical paradigm, which is still very much prevalent in any pharma, or even I would argue even most biotech companies as well where the knowledge base under which we operate is often underwritten by risk. And those risk parameters that are often created are done either protecting liability of an organization um, and ideally protecting the, um, the protection of the consumer uh, or the patient in this instance. And I think it's a fine balance, right? I don't think there's any sort of um, golden key in terms of how do you uncover that. But what we are seeing, though, is that the use of technology allows us to accelerate some of those processes quickly, where, for example, the use of machine learning or deep learning in some of these instances allows you to explore much larger populations and look for non-responders as much as you see responders. And if you really think about you know, clinical trial management in many regards, this is an area where you're often looking to seek the positive clinical outcomes, right, and balance that with the underwritten risk of a, of a trial. The post-clinical trial, and I, that's why I often find it quite interesting, we have a treasure trove of information already. We don't need to buy necessarily additional data, if you will. If we just right. mined what we already had in a more sophisticated way using algorithms to go faster, we might already uncover new mechanisms of action, new therapeutic conditions, and so forth that I think, you know... Will it be faster? Yes. Will it be, you know, like the bullet train? No. And I, and I think we need to have a fine balance between both of those. But I do agree with John that there is this historical basis of working at snail pace. A lot of it also because the adoption of technology in these places has been quite limited as well. I think one of the things that, that is changing in the industry, um, and by the way, John's the best looking guy in the state of New Jersey, in case you're worrying. <laughs> um, one, one of the things that, uh, that is changing in this industry, which we're seeing um, the same pattern coming from other industries is that the the demand side, right? The demand signals, the patients, uh, the way they start to work together in communities like patients like me, the way they start to get involved in understanding therapeutic areas and researching illnesses and treatments, the patients are waking up, uh, so to speak, metaphorically, and are starting to say to the life sciences industry, hey, I need it better and I need it faster. So I think there's a lot of inside out 
debate and discussion that we have around how we change our operating model and how we move faster and how we optimize. But but the final say always comes from the customer. And, and you're seeing more and more patients interested in early clinical uh, uh, trials because they're becoming aware that this is there. You're seeing more and more patients have discussions about pricing and about reimbursement and about the efficacy of a drug. And I think it's the it's the end of the supply chain. I think it's on the demand side where the customers are actually going to wake up and, and are going to force us to get out of this of this uh, snail pace as as Nasta uh, uh, describes it. Yeah, and I think you know if I could add to that, Richie, you know, hundred percent correct, right? I really believe that this healthcare industry is being driven by customers, and these customers are not only becoming more digitally savvy but they're also becoming more information and context sensitive as well. Um, you know, I've worked with the COPD Foundation, which is such a wonderful organization in the past. And I can tell you the patients that we've met in those groups knew more about their disease, knew more about the molecular mechanisms, knew the latest research papers in this area that really I was truly humbled um, to, to, uh, you know, to really understand not only what they're going through contextually, right, just living with that disease, but also scientifically and their notion to fight for truth, if you will, and access to information, which is so critical. And we still have some major boundaries to get over there. Um, I think where the paradigm shift is going to happen is when you do start having these trusted relationships. If you think about what a pharma company is trying to do, ultimately, it really is trying to enrich that relationship between physician and patient. And we all know that even with the advances of digital technologies, the time a physician actually gets to speak face-to-face with a patient is getting more and more limited. And we would think, you know, that's the dystopian effect of digital, right? And I actually think there's a lot of elements within digital, and particularly the digital dystopia, that are probably more advantageous to being able to provide patient support programs, which ultimately then lead to companies like ours progressing faster to provide these services. And this is, this is a known pattern. Right. The financial services industry has gone through this. I'll tell you what I call the pattern. I call the pattern um, the, the phenomenon when an ish- industry goes from an industry that has to provide answers to an industry that has to provide evidence. OK, about 15 years ago, I remember the day when when financial services went through that 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 sort of change. I was on the phone with my broker and I was you know talking to him about some trade that I was trying to make. And I just looked up for a second. I said, wait. I know more about this trade than the person on the other side of the phone. Why am I calling them, right? The financial services industry went from an industry where you would go to the industry for answers to an industry where today you've got all the answers. You're going for sort of evidence, right, and sort of confirmation. The life sciences industry is going through that same change. We were at a point where people came to us for answers, right? What's X, Y, Z? What's ABC? Today, our customers are not looking for answers. They're looking for evidence or confirmation. And as you talk about that, that constricting uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, moment there where a patient and, and, and a provider, a doctor, a PA, a nurse gets the chat, you know, even the delivery side has to go away from sorting only providing answers to start to really contextualize that conversation properly. These are the changes that I think are coming from the outside of the industry that will marry with some of the great stuff that guys like Melinda are doing to really get us to where we need to be. I think in some ways also they're really helping in uh, dislocating the silos that we have today. If you really think about it, right, typically you go to a pharma company, a biotech company, you'll have therapeutic area-based divisions, uh, you know, cardiovascular, you know, diabetes, uh, neuroscience, et cetera, uh, oncology, et cetera. 
And all of those groups, God bless them, because they do work very, very hard, right, to be able to provide the right services to patients. But the reality is they're often incentivized and motivated by supporting that one therapeutic area alone. But you know who doesn't care about that? Patients. Because sometimes patients have different, you know, unfortunately, different diseases or conditions at the same time. And they don't care how we're constructed. They're looking for solutions. They're looking for services to help lead a more dignified life. And I, I, for one, I mean, one of the things I've experienced that's been really profound here at Sanofi, I've seen this demonstrated. I've seen this led. I see the projects that we're doing right now where we're really making a conscientious effort to break down some of those silos and really tackle these issues from a patient-centric perspective and also from a physician and caregiver perspective as well. It's really looking at that holistic uh, care package. You know, John Nosta, again, he's raising some very, very interesting points on Twitter. And I just want to remind everybody, use the hashtag CXOTalk. There's a very vibrant discussion going on about these issues on Twitter right now, and you should definitely be participating in that. So he's talking about uh, clinical trials. He's saying the future is about genomic-based AI augmented trials for smaller patient groups. And he doesn't want a doctor, uh, he says, I don't want a doctor anymore. Give me the power of AI and I'll adjust that genius bedside manner. This is where I love when like a chief data officer and a chief digital officer gets trolled by NASA on Twitter. <laughs> See, this, is, this is where you have to balance. Yeah, this is where you have to balance um, reckless disregard with responsible action. Right. At the end of the day, the, the statements that John are, are making, of course, we all we all live that every day. Right. There, there's no one of us infected in the industry who, who are, are driving the change that don't recognize that. But we have to be responsible in our actions to recognize that some of these 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 discussions are on the edge. And yes, mm-hmm. it's our responsibility to scale the edge and bring them to the center of how we change. But at the same time, Change in large commercial organizations require the marrying of that reckless disregard and responsible action at the same time. So there's no disagreement here Mm. that, yes, genomic data is certainly a landscape that will be fruitful for moving particularly from from care to prevention and Mm. implementing artificial intelligence in certain areas will be beneficial as yet. I would argue that AI is probably a little bit too much of an overpromise and we're being too (laughs) irresponsible with it. But we have to recognize that in any given instance of the history of our species, when we've, when we've made macro structural and social changes, like the ones we're about to go through, where healthcare is about to become demand driven as opposed to supply, supply driven, there's a place for the reckless disregard. But at the same time, it, it has to be married with responsible action. And I think that's what, that's what being in the healthcare industry is about today. If you're a chief, chief data officer, transformation officer, you have to balance those two. Two points here. Number one is we have a question from Twitter. Uh, Victoria Walters has asked twice, and she's getting annoyed because I have not <laughs> asked you this, which is value-based contracts. What do you think of them? Are they truly valuable to the customer? 
to customers or patients. And then I want to come back to AI because an article just came out in Stat Magazine Journal about how Watson is not working. So, so can we take a, a quick detour, value-based contracts, because Victoria Walters is getting mad at me because I haven't asked you that. Yeah, Milan, you take Victoria's question. I want the mm-hmm. Watson question. <laughs> I'll, I'll cover a little bit of that, but I'll let you do that as well. All right. Okay, Victoria. So value-based contracting. I think we're at the early stages of what actually a value-based contract actually means. Um, Initially, it's based on specific clinical endpoints, based on a targeted population. And often these targeted populations have inclusion and exclusion criteria that don't necessarily meet you as an individual when it comes to at point of reimbursement, right? That said, I think the science is getting smarter and I think the contracting over a period of time is gonna learn how to make that more effective. I wanna give you a very simple example. I do think in many ways it's the right way to go. I just don't think we're there yet at the level where it's satisfying and benefiting patients at a holistic degree. Let's take a hospital, for example, and you have a terrible experience in the hospital. The likelihood, potentially, of you not having a great outcome is in fact higher. Whereas if you had wonderful customer service all the way through, you could argue that, yes, the outcome is higher. So in the contractual language, who then owns that component of that outcomes-based contract? Is it the patient satisfaction score when being hospitalized and treated? Is it the clinical evidence that's coming from the medication? Or is it something more? And I think these are the things that we need to start drilling deeper into. I know there's a lot of work streams going on in this space, but um, Victoria, my apologies, I think we're just really at an early stage off that market There's a lot more work that needs to be done to really define what that means. You bring up genomics and AI. And again, John, I I love love the things. But, you know, one thing I tell the team internally, one of our primary job descriptions is to know when to triage bullshit versus when to triage, you know, other things that exist out there. Hey, this is a family-oriented show. You can't say triage bullshit or not. Anyway, go go for it. (laughs) Well, let me put it this way. You know, uh, BS and buzzwords lead to a lot of wasted pilots, right? And God knows we have a dead sea of pilots going on today. Look, I, I think we're at a really remarkable stage at ML, right? I'm not going to say AI because, honestly, AI is a buzzword that's grossly overused at this point in time. Nobody's doing AI. We're doing natural language processing. We're doing computer vision. We're doing other elements that may constitute as machine learning algorithms applied within an AI family, including deep learning. AI is a farce at this point in time in terms of where we are. In healthcare, I think other industries are probably a bit further ahead, but in healthcare, we're not there yet. When it comes to genomic data, I fully agree. Genomic data probably has one of the most wonderful opportunities around the utility of machine learning and deep learning in these areas. But what's changed from 40 years ago when these classification algorithms, these clustering algorithms are already there? You know, naive bays, uh, random forests, these are already there many years ago. Computational processing power, cloud. These are the things that have allowed the utility and application of what we could have done many years ago a lot easier. But why is it easier now? Because your resource allocation to provide the cost necessary to use that infrastructure is a lot cheaper. Back in the day, we had blade environments to be able to do high-performance computing. But then if you ask yourself, well, really, if that was all then there, why is it still taking almost 48 hours to do some of these analyses, right? That's where I would argue the opportunity for most of the work that we're doing. Look, I love AI as an next person. I mean, just look at my Twitter handle. You'll know what I mean, right? 
I do love AI as much as the next person, and I do believe that's where the world is going. But we need to have ethical responsibility in the utility of those and not overuse buzzwords like AI, when in fact you're actually talking about a very narrow field of machine learning solving one specific problem. Now, when it comes to Watson, and I need to be careful here, <laughs> I do like IBM as a company. First and foremost, I think they, the one thing that I've really cherished about IBM over the years is their ability to transform their existing business time and time again. I mean, that's amazing. You really want to look at transformation industry. They are the uh, gospel, if you will, in many regards of how that can be done. Um, I also like them because they allowed through the cognitive computing environments and their wonderful marketers, who I'm sure made a ton of cash in this process, um, enabled an extra zero on my budget line item. Because now I was being asked the question, Millen, what are we doing with cognitive? What are we doing with AI? What are we doing with machine learning? So that was great. That was cool. So now I was able to hire a bit more staff to start looking into these things. But, I, you know, I think Watson's at an interesting point where, you know, and of course, the, the last thing I would say about uh, Watson is that their researchers are perhaps some of the most brilliant minds on the face of the planet. I mean, truly uh, impeccable people that work at, at the Watson research facilities. But where I think the, the rubber has hit the road is sometimes the overpromise of what can be done and by when. Now, I know they've had some good use cases. I'll be the first to say that's great. And that's wonderful because it's trending in the right direction. I think sometimes it's easy to pick on the big guys because they're just big, so the target's bigger. Um, I think they're learning as a firm. I think they're redefining how they approach the industry. I don't think it's all going to be about professional services anymore, whilst yet that's honestly still their main model. But it's, you know... It is what it is. Richie, we, are, we have about, uh, God, we have seven minutes left. So, so, and this conversation has just begun. So Richie, um, so again, John Nosta, I feel like John Nosta is part of our conversation here. Uh, he's on Twitter <laughs> and, and, and you guys are here. So, so John Nosta is saying, well, so is Watson marketing over technology over results. Uh, Richie, your, your thoughts about this AI topic, and then let's move on to a couple of other things quickly before we have to close out. So I, I share uh, Milin's uh, perspective here, right? I have a tremendous amount of uh, respect for IBM as an organization and the people there, and they're doing a great job. I think first, first and foremost, um, you know, if you think about the comments from Elon Musk and others around AI, one of the things we have to do, this is for the non-expert viewers, is to always separate robotics from artificial intelligence. I think uh, the, the entertainment industry has sort of merged those two in our heads, right? Where we think about robotics and AI, and it's hard to separate them. AI itself, as algorithm or software, has a lot of different subsciences to it, okay? There's reasoning and problem solving, there's knowledge representation, there's planning, learning, natural language processing, creativity, general intelligence, social intelligence. There's a lot of pieces of that science that I would call sub-sciences. What, what Watson has done extremely well is to really move forward in the area of natural language processing. I'm not saying that they haven't moved forward in the other areas. And there's a tremendous amount of benefit to that. It's raised the conversation in the enterprises for us so that we can start to experiment in these areas. There's a lot of other small startups that are operating in the small uh, pieces here and there. But I think the, the hype, if I may, is it, does, it doesn't fall on IBM's shoulders. It doesn't. 
the hype actually falls from the analysts and the reporters who are the ones that are getting ahead of their skis because they're looking for clickbait, right? Mm. I don't, I don't, I don't hold IBM responsible for the overhyping of Watson or artificial intelligence. I think it's a brilliant commercial strategy. There's market market conditioning led. I think the responsibility is on the analysts and the writers who are getting way ahead of their skis and just don't understand the subject matter well enough to write intelligently about it. We have another question, and and as an industry analyst, um, yeah, it's you know, mea culpa, I suppose, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't mind calling a spade a spade a spade here. <laughs> Well, look, keep talking about it because we still get we got more stuff to talk about, so it's fine. <laughs> but we have a question, another question from Twitter, and Wayne Anderson is God. This this tweets have flown by so fast. He is asking, how does data help make the decision about when to be recklessly innovative versus to be cautious and balance that risk? So the role of data in innovation versus risk-taking. Okay. So let me clarify a few things. First of all, innovation in itself is a risk, right? The notion, I mean, the whole idea of innovation, people often mistake innovation as being blue sky thinking. It's very easy to come up with ideas. It's very difficult to come up with things that are either commercially or utility or experience space where you're driving positive outcomes in innovation. So I would argue innovation by nature is a risk-based venture. That's why we have companies like venture capital firms that are measuring risk of startup companies with brilliant ideas as part of their valuation, right? So I think when you use data in those instances, you're often looking for a couple of different things. Number one, and first and foremost, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Right? If you don't start with that as a hypothesis, that's when you can use data to start either creating a null hypothesis or an outcome-based hypothesis. And I think the beauty of innovation in this instance, when you start having a data-driven experimental approach, is that you can very quickly reach conclusions or pivot accordingly based on where you are in that life cycle of the experiment. So I think as a pharma company, for example, I mean, this is what we've done. This is how we've grown. We design experiments to produce products, but we often don't apply that same methodology, that rigor, to experimentation when it comes to innovation. In reality, they're exactly the same thing. You have an aim, you have methods, you have materials, you have a hypothesis, and you have conclusions that are derived or results and conclusions derived from that. So I would say, you know, we should not separate innovation and let's call it day-to-day operations. In fact, I tell our company, you know, as employees, we really have two pools of employees. We have those that want to do things better, right? So you can have innovation within that bottom line factor, if you will. But then there are those that want to do better things, right? That break the rules a little bit. But you can't have only one type of group. You need to have both. Right? And, you, and that's where our data allows you in many ways to be able to resource allocate accordingly based on what the business outcome or the projected customer experience outcome or, frankly, what the value is that you're trying to achieve. Richie, I know you'll have thoughts on this. I'll ask you just to keep it short because we're, we're just running out of time. Well, I think we should do it on another show. If we're running out of time, we should take the time to say proper goodbyes and sort of close statements here. So I'll pass 
And now let's get to our closing statements. Okay. So as we finish up, I mean, the, the time has just flown by here. So as we finish up, uh, let me ask you for your your kind of summary or your the distilled wisdom of your broad experience. And if you can com- boil that down to about a tweet sized statement. <laughs> Melinda, you want to go first on that one? Believe in data, be responsible. Wow, that was really good. Believe in data and be responsible. So maybe elaborate with another tweet. Okay. Um, think about the ethical and social implications on the use of information for good. Okay, fantastic. And uh, Richie, your final thoughts and uh, you know, maybe address that silo issue that we spoke about right at the very beginning. I think the life sciences industry is is suffering from what I would call a trust deficit. Um, I think we do great work in the life sciences industry. There are smart men and women here that toil away at improving lives. The issue is that we have silos that prevent us from being completely transparent and and sharing what the great things that we're doing and the progress that we're making. And we have uh, mechanisms in place that lower our transparency, okay? At at the end of the day, you know, when Apple launches a a new product, everybody lines up in front of the Apple store or or the Apple campus. But when Pfizer, you know, launches a drug that saves, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives, nobody's lining up in front of the Pfizer uh, headquarters in 42nd Street in Manhattan, okay? I think the industry is suffering from a lack of trust and transparency, and I think we're going to see within the next five to 10 years, the life sciences industry go from one that is either being chastised or hated to one that is being liked or loved. And I think trust is going to be the, the factor there. You know, we're, we're, we're out of time, but, but Melinda, I mean, this is such a, a kind of powerful statement. And so Melinda, any final thoughts on this notion of trust and transparency? I think it's so important. Absolutely. I think, again, it comes down to the ethical use of data to drive meaningful decisions Right. If you drive meaningful decisions and allow people to understand the communication of those decisions, then you reach a place of trust or at least understand what the key issues are in that trust relationship so that you could further advance a more meaningful relationship. Okay, fantastic. And I will just have the last word by pointing out that on Twitter, Bob Egan, who is an industry analyst, says, is agreeing with Richie Atuaro that analysts don't write intelligently about AI because they're more focused on clickbait. (laughs) (laughs) And so there you go. What an interesting show. And I feel like we've done 45 minutes and about, uh, it's the time has just flown by. You have been watching episode number 255 of CXO Talk, and a huge, huge thank you to our guests. Uh, Melind Cam Kolkar is the Chief Data Officer at Sanofi Pharmaceuticals, and Richie Etwaru is the Chief Digital Officer of Quintiles IMS. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Be sure to like us on Facebook and be sure to give us a thumbs up. No, even better, you should subscribe on YouTube. Please do that. Go to cxotalk.com slash episodes and you'll see all of our shows. We have more shows coming up. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Bye-bye.